but I tell the story about realizing like, wow, this stuff that's in this garage is, it's a physical garage, but it's, it's also a garage as metaphor. There was nowhere for that stuff to go. It had no cultural home. I was sort of saddened and fascinated. That's D.B. Dowd. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. D.B. Dowd is an illustrator, cartoonist, writer, collector, and academic. He teaches illustration, design, and cultural history at Washington University, and that's where he founded the Modern Graphic History Library. In fact, the school named it after him a couple years ago. D.B. has spent a lot of time focusing scholarly inquiry on illustration, a category of artwork that typically is not collected by art museums or studied by art historians. He has a book coming out in September where he puts to work some of his knowledge of the history of illustration to a political purpose. It's called A is for Autocrat. It's an anti-Trump argument in the form of the sorts of ABC books parents use to help children learn the alphabet. First, though, I asked him about the unusual comic he wrote and drew for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in the late 90s. It was called Sam the Dog. It occupied the top half of the inside back cover of the paper on Saturdays. We talked about his version of a political cartoon. Now, Sam the Dog is politically minded, but it's not. It wasn't a caricature of a fat Bill Clinton eating a pizza. And no. the, pi- the pizza says welfare reform. Yeah. You know I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't it was, in that universe of political cartoons. No, it was all. absolutely not in that universe. Yeah. It was it was an allegory of race and class in St. Louis and to some degree the United States in those years. It was densely illustrated and densely written. And it was for many readers just way too much. Like, what is this? But it had kind of a cult following. Each of these were, were one panel, is that right? Yes, they were. Um, it was a single horizontal rectangle. The, the text, it was a prose text. So it was, it was like the story was being told in the text in a third person narrator. And the illustration was uh, a visualization of some aspect of the story. The conceit of the thing, and it, it had kind of absurdist elements, and then it kind of settled into this, again, this allegory of, of race and class. So that the there were two big categories of animal hominids. That is to say, they were like, they walked around on two legs, but they had so animal heads. The goats and the pigs? The goats and the pigs. Okay. Right. And uh, the pigs lived in the suburbs and... Uh, in South City, and the goats and the horned animals lived in Hornville, uh, which was uh, on the north side of the city. So uh, obviously a fairly transparent and crude uh, scheme, but- And you refer to the city as Trapper City. Yes. Which makes me think of maybe the history of Beaver trapping in this part of the world. Yeah, correct, correct. It was an opportunity to talk about how the game was rigged by the pigs against the goats. Uh-huh. Long, long story short, that's kind of how it was set up. And some of these are 
the the allegory is is closer to the surface in some of these than others, right? I'm, Correct. I'm, I'm Very much at, so. I'm looking at one, and uh, it's it looks like it's divided into two images. Uh, the one on the right is clearly a, a pastiche, a riff off of the uh, apotheosis of St. Louis statue uh, in front of yes in front of the yes. St. Louis Art Museum. But you have a there's a long snouted pig riding, looks like maybe a goat into battle uh and yes. ne next to that is a, a map a loose map <laughs> with with uh, out in trapper county there's a jurisdiction called pork and gentry uh yes yes so someone opening up their saturday paper over coffee and getting to the last page and seeing that uh that's unlike most of the other content in the newspaper that day i'm gonna it, guess it, it is it is an astonishment that how do you get away with it you know i still don't really know <laughs> i started i think it's a miracle it survived through the for the first few months uh while i was still figuring out how to do it what kind of response did you get to sam the dog um there were people who loved it and i got mail and uh it was like a secret text that if you had the decoder ring and you could read it and you and, and you liked it and you were open to it, it said things about the city that were not being said. But a lot of people really disliked it and they thought it was obscure. They thought uh, it was mocking good things about St. Louis. And I don't think it was particularly appreciated in the newsroom itself. What did the uh, Post-Dispatch folks think about it? Uh, a lot of them hated it. Um, at least that, that's what I was, I was, uh, that's what I understood to be the case from people who kind of had sources in the newsroom, but the editorial, the editorial staff people were very supportive and it was, uh, it was a great project. And me meanwhile, you're teaching at Washington university. And is this around the time that you're really doing some deep dives into the history of cartooning, illustration, graphical representation? Uh, yes. This is in the, this is kind of in a pure dumb luck story, but we were approached or by the, the, the youngest son of a deceased alum. The alum was Al Parker. His, his son was Kit Parker, who lived in Monterey, California at the time. And he had a garage full of his father's work. As it turned out, Al Parker was an illustrator who's the prime of his career was in the 40s and 50s. And he was a very famous illustrator for largely women's magazines. And there was all this work that Kit had. It wasn't only original artworks. It was tear sheets. It was business correspondence. It was reference photographs. It was like a, a, a portrait of a practice and a time that was totally lost. And I think he talked to an art museum or two and nobody was like, oh, no, thank you. Because it's kind of not art with a capital A. And then so I went out to look at that work with uh, Ann Pasega, who was then director of special collections and Jeff Pike, uh, my colleague in illustration. And we went to go see this stuff and it was fantastic. And we decided, well, let's have the, let's have the university take it. That turned out to be the cornerstone of what has come to be the Modern Graphic History Library, which is a 
repository of illustrators, papers, and collections, but also much more than that, um, a corpus of material, printed matter, uh, magazine runs, posters, uh, etc. that in some cases is about individual illustrators, in other cases is, are there research archives that came to us from scholars, uh, etc. It's a, it's a, a fascinating uh, area that I, I didn't really know anything about. But I tell the story about going to Kit Parker's garage and realizing, like, wow, this stuff that's in this garage is, it's a physical garage, but it's also, it's also a garage as metaphor. There was nowhere for that stuff to go. It had no cultural home because it's this in-between, deeply contingent stuff that illustration always is. I, I was fascinated by that reality. I was sort of saddened and fascinated. David, you start saying, uh, why, did, why didn't I know about this and why aren't more people talking about this and collecting it and studying it? Oh, for sure. For sure. What uh, kind of stuff are we talking about? Uh, uh, advertisements uh, for one, right? Advertisements. Lots and lots of illustrations of fiction. One of the things that people really don't recognize is the degree to which illustrated magazines for adults that had stories about adults, many of them romance, but not all of them, some of them adventure, etc., filled the pages of American magazines on a mass scale from the early 20th century until about 1960. And there were armies of illustrators and fiction writers who fed that maw to produce cultural matter on a weekly and monthly basis. And then when the, the bottom of that market fell out in the early 60s, people like Al Parker, he was at the height of his powers in his late 50s when the bottom fell out, and he was done. And there's not an academic framework that has been analyzing this kind of material? Well, um, there's something called periodical studies, which was a term that was coined, I don't know, maybe a dozen years ago. Most of that work has been about texts, kind of text-based analyses, and a lot of them from the late 19th century, before illustration became as, as dominant as it was, illustration is often invisible. And when I say invisible, I don't mean invisible like, oh, those meanies don't see the pictures. I mean that it's invisible because it is so integrally tied to the act of reading. It's so in support of the cultural delivery of the text that it actually is easy to miss because you're just inhabiting it rather than looking at it like I'm, I'm standing in a museum looking at a painting, which is this freestanding thing, and I'm thinking about what the painting means. So if there is a, a shortage of critical analysis of this kind of material, I guess you set out to, to fill some of that void, right, with your, with your blog, uh, Graphic Tales. Yes, yes, I did. I mean, I wasn't the only one. Um, I think it's been a movement in over the last... I mean, I started Graphic Tales in 2007, and that's, you know, that was the time when I think uh, a certain number of people started trying to write about this stuff. 
more seriously, but uh, some art historians are writing more about illustration. But the fact is that illustration really isn't art. A lot of people have cried a lot of tears about that fact that, in my view, has been pointless. That's D.B. Dowd. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and we'll be right back after this one message. Welcome back to Cut and Paste. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and I'm talking with D.B. Dowd about illustration and cartooning. Since 2007, he's written a blog about it called Graphic Tales. He's written that his goal is to take illustrations and cartoons and rescue them from outdated hierarchies of taste and engage them on their own theoretical and cultural terms. I asked him about those hierarchies of taste and how some scholars have overlooked so much of the work that he finds interesting and meaningful. He gave me an example of how illustrators have played a big role in shaping social attitudes in a way that hasn't been studied that much because their work falls outside the categories of art that scholars consider to be important. That example is the story behind a fictional character created by advertisers to sell pancakes and syrup on Jemima. Well, I guess it's been about a month or so since Quaker Foods announced in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing and all that followed that it was going to retire the brand name Aunt Jemima. That was widely recognized as a notable thing, but the visual history of Aunt Jemima is Aunt Jemima was an invented character whose job it was, in effect, to, along with other kinds of, other similar kinds of characters, effectively domesticate the memory of slavery in the United States by supplying these agreeable, compliant, helpful, adult, desexualized adult blacks. Um, uh, Rastus, the chef for Cream of Wheat, and Jemima. Uh, does Aunt Jemima come out of uh, minstrelsy? Yes, she does. She was, in fact, a minstrel character. So Aunt Jemima starts out in 1890, and a very famous illustrator at the time named A.B. Frost uh, did, the, did the first painting of her that became the brand materials for the package. As it happens, at WashU, we, in the Modern Graphic History Library, we have that original painting that little gouache painting oh. of Jemima. And then, um, well, going back to 1920, N.C. Wyeth, a very famous illustrator, is hired to help invent and illustrate the story of Aunt Jemima's life, which is, of course, complete nonsense. Um, involves her, her affection for the Confederate general who comes through town, who she helps save from the Union troops. I mean, it's got Lost Cause stuff written all over it. And then another famous illustrator named Haddon Sundblom is hired to refresh the brand and recreates Jemima circa 1937. So there are three illustrators, Frost, Wyeth, and Sundblom. 
who would all be present in any survey of American illustration, of people whose names you maybe should know, who are complicit, and especially in Wyatt's case, involved up to his eyeballs in creating this ridiculous narrative that perpetuates the world, the world after Reconstruction. And you would not encounter that fact in any gloss of any of those three illustrators' careers. Like, that would be left out. So that's an example of how I think art historians might be justified in saying, yeah, see, this stuff isn't very serious. But it would also be, they would also be likely to say that, that the stuff that they're making is not, quote, autonomous. That is to say, it doesn't exist on its own terms. It only exists on a contingent basis. There's no reason to paint a picture of Aunt Jemima if she's not going to go on a package. So the fact that illustration is enmeshed in other things, it's, it, is, it serves a manner of cultural text and subtext for that matter, is, is one of the things that makes it unart-like. And mm. so would not be, you just wouldn't see a painting of Aunt Jemima, unless it were a satirical painting of Aunt Jemima made in the last 50 years in a museum. And you think there's a lot to be learned from this? There's a ton to be learned yeah. because what, what is that society doing? How is that society marshalling its visual and textural resources to tell us who our fellow citizens are? and how they might be regarded. There's comparable stuff for American Indians. If you look at the way Irish were represented in the late 19th century, they're, they're, they're like monkeys. There's lots of examples of how illustration and cartooning were used to shape ideas about others and the other. Like it's really complicated and and important to unpack to figure out how how we understand the cultural landscapes that we operate in and because images like illustration can be invisible while nonetheless front and center people absorb these ideas without knowing that they're absorbing them mm. i get the sense that your knowledge of this history comes into play in your new book, A is for Autocrat. Yes, I think that that's a fair statement. In looking through A is for Autocrat, Autocrat, I get the idea that you are juxtaposing different styles from different eras of advertisement or magazine illustrations uh, to, to suit your own very contemporary purpose. Uh, th I think that's correct, yes. It, this is your satire or your 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 pastiche of a very specific kind of publication so tell, tell me where it's coming from a is for autocrat is an abc book abc books have a long history it's not necessarily the most obvious thing to choose a traditional children's format to construct a textual and visual indictment of donald trump 
I spend a lot of time in antique mall and I rummage around looking through printed matter for this or that thing. And as it happens, I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, of all places, uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving 2018 in an antique mall. And I came across this little booklet that was published by the Grolier Society. The Grolier Society published a children's encyclopedia called the Book of Knowledge. And they issued this little pamphlet that uh, was a, a, a guide to character education tied to the Book of Knowledge. In the back of the booklet, there is uh, something called the Children's Moral Code that is this very concisely little written uh, text about the things that we should teach kids in order for them to be a good person. And they're, they're, they're articulated in laws. So there's the law of self-control, there's the law of reliability, the law of truth, the law of loyalty. Every single one of them was rendered absurd by the behavior pattern associated with the current president. And I was so struck by this. It seemed so quaint and like from another world, although it was published in 1946. So in the immediate aftermath of World War II and the Holocaust, there was something in the simplicity and clarity and cogency in the writing of this code of conduct for children that made me want to turn it against Trump. Somehow to use the discipline of writing briefly and plainly and directly about a subject of importance. And then to put it next to a picture. Let's see, let me open my PDF of this book. I don't know if you want to pick a particular letter maybe to talk about. Let's talk about K for a second. Okay. And this is K is for knowledge. Yes. Would you have it in front of you? Would you care to read the, read that out? Yeah. Yeah. Knowledge. Trump and his followers celebrate ignorance and sideline expertise. DJT's gut is offered as a substitute that site of hostility bias and corruption. Trumpers decry learning because they fear sunlight. They never illuminate, only conceal. So the right-hand page is the uh, earth and the moon and the sun and the dinosaur, the brontosaurus goes, kind of goes between the two pages. And then there's also a, um, uh, a diagram of the digestive system. <laughs> Um, what are some of the styles that you're employing here as a, as an illustrator? What I was thinking of when I conceived of this spread were those books that were published, they're post-war, they're like late fifties, early sixties books for young people about science. And they were really well designed and illustrated and they capture something that is confident and curious and engaged in open-ended inquiry in a certain sort of way. It's like what fed the space program, et cetera, right? 
And those books have that spirit. And so I was thinking about the way in which Trump et al. do the opposite of science. What science tries to do is to reveal the inner logic of natural forces in the world or how things work. And Trump always conceals how things work. Things are either hidden or they're obfuscated. So I started just kind of riffing on the iconography of those of those books, which have pictures of dinosaurs. And then there's a picture of the Earth and the moon orbiting the sun, because that's a staple of those books. And then I started thinking about how, like, where would you put something if you want, didn't want anyone to find it? We'd put it on the dark side of the moon. So in this, in this illustration that's kind of mimics this visual vocabulary of these books, there's there are arrows and fine lines showing relationships between things. And there's a little arrow, a nicely little typeset word, Trump, showing him as being on the dark side of the moon. But it's, it's all in the context of here's how the moon goes around the earth and here's how the earth goes around the sun. It's using this optimistic, forward-looking, transparent representation of the fascinating qualities of the way the universe works and embedding hidden secrets uh, in it. So that's a case where I'm using one language to undermine it. That was D.B. Dowd. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this has been Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced with help from our executive editor, Shula Newman. Our intro and outro music is by Eric Hall. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.